The Collaborating Conversation podcast is for avid book readers, book lovers, and authors. Listen to this podcast as we talk more about the art of writing, stories behind books, and the hands that created them. So stay tuned and enjoy our show. Welcome to the Collaborating Conversations podcast. Today's episode is part four of Founder Series Deep Dive by author Emmanuel M. Ariaga. It's been a while since we did last time, um, since we went into part three. For part four, I guess um, we discussed previously that you're uh, setting up the audio. Uh, you're, you're looking for an actress or an actor. Yeah, actress or actor or voice actor, however you want to describe, uh, to re-record your second book. Uh, why don't you go ahead and describe that process of finding uh, finding a good actress or actor, and what what do you, what qualities are you looking for? Yeah, so um, so we're signing up to so the new the second book was uh, published uh, earlier this no last year, um, and uh, right now I'm working to find um, an audiobook producer uh, and voice actor or actress um and um i spent a lot of time doing um uh creating very detailed um audition files so like the one that i did for this this specific audition cycle uh i had snippets from about four different scenes um and the uh the snippet it was focused on um, the internal dialogues that Lenret does, um, as well as uh, a scene that required use of voice effects because that was one of my required things was to actually um, do some voice effects for the Relish Kel because I wanted them to be these otherworldly beings, uh, and so it was important to you know that they didn't just sound like a you know, like a normal, um, like a normal character. Um, and then so, just typical dialogue. A couple questions there, follow up. Uh, so yeah. when you're looking for an actor uh, to do the parts, you do request that they can do some effects. Are, um, are you trying to keep in contact with the first book? Because I know that was something that you had done as well. However, it sounds like it also is just part of the character. And is that typical for uh, audio um voice actors to do effects or is that atypical it depends um some books don't really need them um but I, for my book um i've always been interested in doing voice effects especially because there's telepathic communication so whenever you know telepathy is used i wanted to distinguish that from regular dialogue um you know the relish kill like i mentioned before you know they're supernatural otherworldly beings so i wanted them to sound inhuman um and then um um you know some of the some of the villain other villains and side characters like they might have um you know like the seshra from book one which were the minions of the eshkren you know i had some voice effects done for them as well um and so yeah i think it it makes sense in, in my book because of a lot of the different variety of characters um, to distinguish some of those specific characters. I actually had one guy audition for the first book a long time ago who uh, really went all out with the, um, with the special effects. You know, he had like a, like, you know, audio of like uh, Nevin when he was inside the BRS frame, which is this massive mech armor. He, uh, he actually did like, you know, audio that was like mech, mech audio, like, you know, like uh it was pretty it was pretty good it had battlefield effects you know he he, he was pretty solid the, the issue that uh, i had with him was that he he refused to do certain types of scenes um you know he's just like you know he wasn't comfortable doing you know like um uh adult scenes or you know uh different things like that uh and so it's just like well you know <laughs> you can't just cut out portions of the book um and it's not uncommon for some voice actors to be that way like i actually just had one voice actor ask me if there was any 
Adele content in the second book. And I was just like, well, you know, there's, there's scenes of people, you know, being intimate in some way or another. Uh, and they're just like, all right, I'm going to pass, um, you know, which is fair. Some people, you know, don't want to work on that type of content, which is fine. But yeah, I, you know, that was the one thing that, um, you know, voice, voice effects. And I think it's, it also distinguishes the quality of the voice actor. You know, if they can do some voice effects, um, you know, it, it means that they, they have some pretty good skills. It means they have a pretty good setup for recording. Um, and so, you know, they're usually higher caliber than your typical voice actor. Which does add cost, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, typically they don't, they don't add additional cost for voice effects. It's just like their rate, you know, uh, in general, uh, might be a bit higher than say a voice actor who's not very experienced. But you expect a little higher quality and a little bit technical. It's, it's quite fascinating how more and more things are becoming, some technical skills are more required for certain jobs and certain roles. Is it pretty common for, um, do they give you reasons or you don't really care what the reasons are for not doing adult content? It's more of, Hey, if you don't want to do it, that's fine, but it is required for this book. Yeah. I mean, they'll just say like, I don't do that. And I'm just like, all right, that's fine. <laughs> you know, it's not a big deal. Yeah. I'm sure there's a very good reason. Some people probably probably, probably for religious reasons or other stuff. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, not going to work for you. It's not going to work. It's nothing against them. They're probably great. Just you want to keep, you wrote it in the book for a reason, right? Yeah, one one thing that um, that actually uh, is is quite common is people might um, you know for those types of people they might actually say like oh I don't do swear words so like if there are swear words in the book I won't do it which is fine for me because I don't use swear words in my books and I actually created in the second book I actually created um, swear words that were native to the universe that don't actually mean anything you know and so like. Um, you know, and so the characters will say these expletives, but it's not like an actual expletive. It's like the, you know, native, you know, it's like in Battlestar Galactica when they would say frack, right? It's like... That's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, you know, but, you know, like um, like a common one in uh, in the Foundry universe starting in book two is Vusk, uh, V-U-S-G, you know. And so, you know, that's a common expletive that's used, you know, and I, and I did some research to like find out how to make like a good expletive... <laughs> So it's like, you know, like, you know, how, you know, uh, and so there's similarities to like the, the punctuation and, and, you know, how it's said and things like that. But, you Is know, it means absolutely history? nothing, right? Like it has no meaning in the, in any language um, except Foundra. And once you read the book, you're never going to not say it. Just like, uh, just like everyone who watched Battlestar Galactica is now fr says frack whenever they can. Yeah. And you know, it's funny, actually implemented it based off of feedback from a friend of mine he actually um he said his, his specific dialogue was around dexter because dexter is like this gritty assassin type you know who you know grew up on the streets is very like you know he's a sentinel right and so you know he you know you know he my, my friend told me he's just like it's very weird for you to have this character who had you know who is this archetype and like he never swears you know it's just like it you know it, it you know you know because he's like this this wise cracking uh you know like gritty person and so you know it's like you know there's some there's some validity to that and so you know in book two like dexter swears like a sailor right but you know it's all the you know it's these made up words how does that affect continuity though since he didn't do that in the first book uh i mean it's um character development yeah, there you go <laughs> i i think it's um it doesn't it doesn't really you know it just i think it just brings more more to his character in the second book and and you know there are some characters who swear and there are some who don't right so like nevin for example you know his character was very much you know, um, not the type of character who swore, you know, he had some, some, some uh, belief structure and morals, you know, that kind of prevented him from doing certain things in the first book. And so in the second book, like, you'll never see him swear, right? Uh, even though like a lot of characters around him do. And so it actually is interesting, because it adds a dynamic into the universe um, that I hadn't thought of before, you know, 
Um, and so it actually, I think it helps bring the book to life a little bit more, uh, you know, because you'll, you know, it's an easy thing to like switch on. So like, you know, the, the second book deals a lot with space pirates, specifically Het Rastat, which is um, this notorious band of space pirates. And, um, you know, every single member of Het Rastat swears like a pirate, right? Um, and so it actually helps bring some of the characters to life in ways that, you know, um, I hadn't thought of before, um, you know, but it's not actually saying real swear words. So I'm comfortable doing that, but, you know, it does allow me to bring the universe to life a bit more. I know that some people might find that odd, like, um, depending on your audience, you know, oh, you're okay with an adult content scene, but not okay with swearing. That seems like a contra not a contradiction, but seems like a very interesting line. Um, as an author, are you, do you have to sometimes forget about your own morality when you're writing the characters or when you're deciding what to put in and not put in? I don't think so. Um, you know, I think, you know, it's like, you know, sex is not something that's bad. It depends on the context, right? Um, So I think, you know, and so I don't feel like it's, you know, a bad thing to have characters who who do it in that context, right? But, you know, depending on the context, like you may feel a different way around that character, right? Um, But, you know, swearing, I think, is one of those things where, you know, you know, um, at least for me personally, like, that's a value that I have. So I don't, you know, I don't swear in real life, so I wouldn't write a book where people are swearing. So it's just something that I struggle with. Um, you know, when I was in college, you know, I used to swear like a sailor. And so, you know, I gave that up, um, you know, um, and, uh, you know, it's not something I want to go back to. I totally understand. I know, at least for me, different seasons will be more sailor-like and other seasons will be more saint-like. Uh, it just depends on what's going on and... I flip-flopped a little bit a few times, you know, interesting thing about being a human, we can change and change our minds and sometimes we're okay with something. And then, you know, we're like, you know, I'm no longer comfortable with this anymore. Yeah. Uh, Do you find that fun to develop your character and kind of give them different morals than what you usually you yourself would do? Or do you find that a difficult process? No, I mean, I absolutely do. Uh, and it's actually an interesting, I would say my characters come alive to me. I might've mentioned this before in, in, in previous deep dives, but one of the things, um, you know, with the characters, uh, you know, when I'm writing a character, you know, that character kind of writes themselves. Like it's actually a weird experience uh, because they come alive on the paper and, you know, you kind of get in their head and, you know, react in a way that they do that might, contradict a way that you would normally react but you know you're 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 bringing that character to life and you you just kind of letting that character be that character um and yeah where do you get uh where do you get a lot of inspiration for your characters friends family different situations yeah i think it's something we talked about before i think it's it's very um you know characters are a mix of different um ideas uh sometimes they might be based off of a a real life person but you know it's the inspiration for not a mirror of that person just different quality traits depending on what you're looking for the character to develop when you're developing a character do you kind of i know i think we mentioned this before in one of the other dives you kind of do a D &D sheet is that how you determine which traits you know like some genetic traits are more prone than others is that how you determine like oh what percentage of this trait will be active during this time or you know like if they're typically a passive person but this one thing makes them extremely angry so this is the situation they'll get extremely angry and yell and rage uh so so it's actually this is actually a really complicated topic so the way i start is each character there there are three components to every character so there's the species um, you know, if we look at all the different species, so we have the Darbol, the Dasfin, the Hoxham, the Kentar, the Husians, the John Sorrento, which are introduced in book two, the Kuven, the Luxemeni, which are all introduced in book two, and, and some of those are talked about, but they're not really seen until like book two or book three, which is in progress. The Tuzan, the Uri, Vampire, Iratine, and Human. Iratine are introduced in book two. Um, 
and so it starts with the species so like what's the species character type and you know each i have a i have a detailed character uh species sheet you know like you would in D D that details out you know attributes of the different species um you know for example um you'll have you know like if i bring up um i'm currently looking at yuri, or yuri or i forget how to pronounce her name which one uri oh the yuri yeah um so yeah so the yuri um you know they they have you know if you look at you know i have a, a, a character sheet um and i think in the appendix i also put some of this information there for book one but you know have different complexions and things like how they look physical characteristics their build what color their blood is sometimes that's important um you know what their hair color spectrum is eye color spectrum how they reproduce what their mating culture is what species they're compatible with a brief history of the species you know depending on the the thing they might have miscellaneous context like the ori you know are very tribal uh and so you know there's a whole tribal structure you know similar to like a caste system you know where the different tribes um, you know, some tribes are very powerful, some tribes are very small, you know, what tribe you belong to as an Ori kind of dictate, dictates your standing in life, at least on Peshkana, which is the mother world, um, where the Ori originate from, you know, uh, and then there are, you know, they're very gesture heavy species. So, you know, they have different, you know, um, and some species are like this, where they have different things that they do to signify, you know, um, uh, different things like agreement or, you know, secrets and things like that. And so I start with, you know, what is the species, you know, and that kind of gives me a, a mental model of that character. And then I, and then I determine like, what class are they, right? Um, and then, you know, for the different classes, that's when you get into things like, you know, are they an Arclight, an Argent, um, an Ashna Maiden, which is a, a, a class introduced, a class and faction introduced in book two. A member of the Shah, which is introduced in book two. They're talked about in book one, but you actually encounter Shah for the first time in book two. Shah hunters, which are introduced in book two. A Sidilif, a Cephist, combat Cephist, Nistif, which is introduced in book two. Redolim, Scion of Ashna, which is introduced in book two. Seknics, what kind of Seknik are they? You know, Sentinel, you know, um, Bullpen. You know, so once you know, once I determine their, their species, then I determine what class they fall into. And that class, um, you know, may help define other aspects of their personality because each class is unique, right? You know, so, you know, you have the cultural aspect from their species and then you have their profession aspect from their class. And so those, com those two combinations of things help to build the character itself. And then once I have those two things, for each character, then I actually go into um, defining very specific things like um, what are their motivations, um, what are their, um, um, bring this up, you know, what what their what their personality what their personality is like, you know, what their history is. So a lot of times, building out a bio um, for the character, you know, because it's it's easier to bring character to life when they have a history um and then like what their motivations are what their goal is what the conflicts are that they you know they have mentally or physically even you know what what epiphany or revelation happens to them over the course of the journey you know whether it's one book or multiple books and then what 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 importance they play you know and then i get into specifics around like how they look and that's heavily influenced by you know their species, um, you know, and, uh, you know, and so, um, you know, so all those aspects go into creating a single character. Um, and so it, it, you know, it helps be because I've done all this work before defining these classes, defining these species, you know, it allows me to create some very varied characters because, you know, I, I then combine those different aspects and, you know, in that specific situation and it helps me bring the character to life um, in a way that would be harder if I didn't have, you know, any of those, um, any of those things. After a while, is it hard to keep track of who's who or what, or do you, um, do you kind of pride yourself on, for lack of better terminology, data organization of your characters, your races, your classes, your, uh, species? Yeah, I have, uh, uh, 
a, a master spreadsheet that is incredibly detailed as well as detailed docs for each character class species um lore aspects uh, and so i i I do a lot to keep myself organized um, because it's impossible at this stage to keep everything in my head. And so, um, you know, I end up having to go back and reference, um, you know, certain characters or certain, you know, things. I think, you know, all the major characters are easy, but when you start getting to some of the sub characters or the, the different relationships there, um, you know, I have, I map those out um, to make it easy to, you know, determine like who would be involved or who would be, you know, um, who would be in discussion specifically like the relationship part. Like I had to getting in the book two, I actually had to do, I, I, I created one initially in book one, like a relationship graph. Um, but in book two is actually when I had to, um, spend some more time on that just because when, you know, at, over time you begin to develop a lot of characters and, you know, it's important to like keep the mental model of how those different characters relate to each other. Um, you know, because if everyone's friends, like that's not realistic. Right. And so you have to, what people have enemies. Yeah. I mean, even not enemies, but just like, you know, like specifically with like the founders elite, for example, you know, you know, they don't all get along. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, this comes out in book two where, uh, and I expand on it even more in book three, where, you know, there are conflicts that arise between them because they're people, right? And so, um, you know, so it's important to keep track of those relationships and what their relationships are to each other. Um, and then you know, changes because, throughout the book, right? So, yeah, big changes, do some people grow closer or grow apart? And then, um, so it sounds like you're kind of developing a <laughs> relational database here. <laughs> Keeping track. Yeah, and in, in many ways I am, yeah. So when... When thinking about introducing a character, um, do you determine whether they're going to be a new uh, part of a current species, a new species or class, or before defining the characteristics, or do you define the characteristics characteristics first, and then from there determine okay, based on this, they would probably fall under or be a better fit under this umbrella. It depends. So I think if I'm developing a main character, I start with what species I want them to be first and then what class I want them to be. And then I define the character based off of those things. Um, if I'm like, if it's a side character or someone that, you know, is maybe in a handful of scenes, um, I define what role they're playing first and then fill in, um, you know, like what species they are, what class they are. Uh, and so it's it's a little different if it's a secondary or side character versus if they're a, a primary character. And people may be primary, people may appear to be secondary characters in some books, but they're actually primary characters in later books. And so for those characters, I've spent you know that time the going through that process, like I mentioned earlier, of you know fully thinking through like their species, their class. Um, and, and, and then building their motivations and things like that. Like side characters a lot of times don't have, you know, as detailed motivations or goals or conflicts or things like that because, you know, they may only show up in like one or two scenes. Um, um, and like, I and for some characters, I, know, I don't even, you know, one of the things that I started doing more in book two is, um, you know, if, the, if a character is playing, like, if a character speaks or does more than, you know, or does, you know, or shows up in like two or three more scenes, then they get named. But if they don't, then I don't even bother naming the character or, you know, building out like a full character profile for them. Cause they're just, you know, so-and-so crewman or, you know, something like that. Cause I, one, one of the things that I noticed was that um, for some characters, you know, I, I, I would name characters that were maybe in like one or two scenes in the first book. And then, you know, they might not show up again. And people are just like, oh, this character's name, like, do I have to remember this person? And I realized, like, I don't, you know, it's not, it doesn't actually add something to name random NPCs, I guess you could say. Or red shirts. <laughs> yeah, red shirts. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, I started cutting down on that in the second book and tried to eliminate, you know, that, that cognitive load. 
you know, because people do say like, you know, I've gotten some people who've written reviews who are just like, you know, there are a lot of characters, you know, they constantly have to refer back to the appendix, which, you know, I think because it's a space opera, like that's going to still going to happen. But, you know, I try to minimize the need to do that, you know, only for the important characters that you should actually remember. So, for example, if your important character is on a ship, you're going to not name the captain if he's just in that ship that one time and the ship blows up when you land or something like that. Yeah. Jumping back to voice acting, a uh, question I had, I realized we'd kind of gone down a different rabbit hole here, so this might need to be moved. Anyway, um, what do you do? How do you, how do you determine, you know, when you're going through the audition process and you like some voices but you don't like one because I know you kind of gave us a preview and um, the one voice actress you were testing kind of did a valley girl for Remy, and that just did not sound like her at all. <laughs> like, just a, um, I kind of struggle with that. So, how do you determine if you like all the other voices or you don't like one, or do you make changes, or does that kind of after you've approved, or if you don't like a majority of them, you'll just not cast the person, or walk us through that a little bit more? Yeah. So, so like for my audition, for example, I've, I've provided detailed um, voice descriptions for each character that's in the audition. Um, and so, um, you know, for the auditions itself, um, I'm looking more at what their range is. So like, can they do varied voices? Can they, you know, be creative or interesting? Um, and, you know, or does everyone sound the same and they're not really doing that much variety? Um, and then, you know, when we actually start working together, like when I was working with my previous voice actress, you know, then we get into like, you know, the specifics of like, how does this character sound? You know, I don't like this approach, you know, um, but it's also like one of the, one of the things that's valuable with the audition phase is like when I provide, you know, detailed notes for the character, you know, do they actually listen to those notes or do they just not care at all? Cause I, I get auditions from people who like, they don't even try to do like the, the different things, uh, the different voices or, or things. And I'm just like, all right, yeah, not even considering you, <laughs> right? Because it's just like, you, you're, you're not taking my cues. So that tells me that, you know, if I were to hire you, I would have a tough time with, um, you know, actually getting people to, um, um, to follow, follow the guideline. Um, As someone who listens to a lot of audiobooks, um, it does seem kind of surprising that they wouldn't, want to do multiple voices because that's kind of seems one of the benefits of the audiobook genre is you can have multiple voices i guess is that kind of helpful with you know your character and more does that help the actor or actress who's recording kind of distinguish each character yeah you know something um when i worked with my first voice actor she she would actually do like an audio test for every new character she would send me like a clip and so like, Hey, this is, is this what you were thinking for this character? Like how you would sound, you know, and I will, you know, based off of the, 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 the detailed information that I gave them, you know, and that was actually a really valuable exercise to go through because, you know, we course corrected a few times and just like, no, that's not how they, I want them to sound or, you know, let's switch that up. Um, and so it was a really valuable exercise to flush out, you know, to make sure that each character does sound unique. Um, I think for for your faceless Richards, right? Like um, for those characters, I have them do generic species um, uh, accents because each species has a accent. Um, and, uh, you know, for those random characters, you know, it's just doing the generic accent. Like I mentioned before, like Tuzan's... Uh, uh, have British accents, right? And so it's like, you know, uh, anytime you encounter a Tuzan character, they're going to be talking like a British person. You know, anytime you encounter, you know, a Husian or a human, they're going to have, you know, be talking with an American accent. Um, anytime you encounter um, uh, Vampire, they're going to have really deep voices. Um, uh, Ori are going to have a bit of a playful voice. Um, you know, so, you know, I, um, I try to introduce these, um, you know, help to bring, to help bring the universe to life a bit, even just random characters at least have some type of accent, you know, it's similar to like D and D, right? Like a, you know, a dwarf is going to sound a certain way an elf is going to sound a certain way, 
you know, human and an orc are going to sound differently. Right. And so it's, it's kind of bringing that variety to the founder universe and that, you know, every species, you know, sounds different from the other one. Um, just how, just how different regions have different accents. You would assume yeah. in space, different locations would have different accents. Now you are limited to what the voice over artist is able to do, but that's where if you select a good one, there shouldn't be any worries. Looking for an exciting space adventure book, a romantic young adult story, and a fantastic sci-fi read? Get The Fondra by award-winning author Emmanuel M. Ariaga today and prepare to feed your imagination with never-ending thrill ride. Yeah, and actually, um, I do, even on uh, Thigh, which is the... Um, even though even Thai, um, which is the Hughesian homeworld, um, has different accents for different areas of Thai. Um, and I wanted to, you know, and because a lot of the characters that you encounter in the book are Hughesian, um, you know, because that's the primary uh, species, uh, you know, in the Foundry universe. Uh, and so, you know, and so I added some variety even to Hughesians, um, you know, to, to, to to make those somewhat varied um similar to how like in london you're gonna have like a cockney accent more of a posh accent and you can have everyone can be speaking you know british english but they can sound very different yeah what uh what was it like the first time you heard some of your characters kind of coming to life uh was that a uh, fulfilling feeling like what kind of how did that how did that feel for you yeah man i think it's uh it's a really cool experience um you know even even when I was listening to like the voice actor audition for the second book, like just listening to the characters and how they bring them to life was, was fun. Right. And I've, and I've listened to the audiobook, you know, fully through and, you know, sometimes on the edge of my seat as I'm listening, cause I'm just like, you know, oh, this is fun. Right? <laughs> Even though you um, knows what happens. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you suspend, you suspend your disbelief. Right. Um, and so it's actually interesting, and, and I think it's something that's really interesting as an author. And I've heard other authors talk about this too, where, you know, if you're listening to an audiobook of like your own book or you're reading your own book, like, you know, you suspend your disbelief and you're just like, what's going to happen next? Right. <laughs> it's just like you're the person who wrote the book and it's just like, you know, what's going to happen next? Right. Like, you don't, you don't think about it that way when you're, you know, when you're, when you're replaying it, you know, you can actually enjoy it like, a, you know, like, a, you know, or someone else who's, who's never, you know, who didn't write it. Right. Uh, and so I think that's something that's pretty fun and unique just about the whole experience. Now, is there any difference? Um, so after writing the book, you know, you can't obviously send it to a artist or vo voice actor uh, until the book is written. Do you give them a similar copy or do you have kind of like a identification system so that they don't have to read, Oh, and Remy said, or, you know, this character said that, is it is it differently um shoot, i'm not sure the right wording is it uh, is it uh does it yeah and no, i understand your question so um so no so what i do is i give them the um the like the pdf version or not the pdf but the like the kindle version or whatever their preferred format is some do pdf some do kindle and what they do for their preparation for the novel is they actually um they actually spend some time marking it up and you know uh, going through the, the process of, of getting ready to do it. And so they actually have a process by which they, they go through and prepare for the, um, um, f to, to start recording. Uh, and they have, I think they have different techniques and approaches, you know, you'd have to talk to an audiobook you know, act, voice actress or voice actor to get more insight into how they work, but, you know, they definitely have their own approach to doing it because you know they'll prep different sections like they'll have cue markers for different things you know um some voice some voice actors um you know um i've seen them um you know you know like so-and-so laughed you know instead of saying like so-and-so laughed they'll just laugh right uh you know and so it's like they you know each voice actor is different and they have different cues or for how they bring it to life and i think that's one of the things that distinguishes the skill level between the um the voice actors and voice actresses is you know the more experienced the higher cost ones like they actually it's a craft for them right like they are they take your book right and then they 
they go through their process to bring it to life. Um, and it's actually funny, like my, you know, when I was working with my, my first voice actor, she actually, she actually marked it up because she has an English degree and she's like, Hey, I noticed, you know, like this isn't, this isn't a, you know, cause they, they, they look at it from like the speech perspective, you know? So like, there are sometimes things where you, um, you know, you can write something a certain way and it's perfectly fine written. But if you were to say that same thing, that's not how you would say it. Uh, and so, you know, there, there, there were definitely instances where, you know, they would say something differently than the way it was written because, um, you know, it was, um, you know, when you're speaking at it, it's just, they, they handle it differently. It was only a few instances, but it was definitely things I caught because what I do is when I'm reviewing submitted audio, you know, I have the, the text up on the other screen and I'm just going through line by line as they're reading to catch any errors. Nice. That's really cool. That's something that I've always thought of since technology is kind of adapting and changing. Uh, it'd be very interesting if you could have a metadata tag for each character. So as artificial intelligence and other actions come over, I guess curious as an author, would this be something you would be interested in is having like essentially an AI that can generate different voices for each character. And then you're, you know, the PDF you submit has metadata and tags for each character and then it uses different voices. Obviously I don't think it'd be to the quality of a voice actor, but if speech synthesis could actually get to human level, you know, cause as a, as a dyslexic and someone who finds it hard to read, I would love to have more books audiofied. And so a simple, like throw this PDF in this machine learning algorithm, you know, advanced AI and it spits out an audiobook that sounds professionally done. That would be like my kind of wet dream for audiobooks. <laughs> I'm curious. Is that, I mean, yeah. There's actually technology that does that. I know is um, you, you can add emphasis to certain words to have them said in a certain way. I forget what that technology was called. I, I know there's some AI in development there. I'm curious though, if like that's going to become the future of writing where you have like metadata tags, like this character said that, because I'm curious if that would make it easier for the voice actor uh, in the future, but I guess they each do it their own way, so they're just going to read it anyway. Yeah, I think I think what um, so and this is what I've been able to discern, at least from the voice actors I worked with. I think when they get to characters, they have sample clips to say how that character sounds, and so you know if they get to a certain character, like they'll play that sample clip to like get into the, the mindset of the, you know, the accent that they, that character says. Um, uh, and, and so I think they, you know, they're able to, they're able to quickly reference like how a certain character is supposed to sound based off of, you know, the audio that they, that they initially recorded for that accent. Um, because they, they're pretty consistent throughout the entire book. Uh, you know, of keeping the same accent. And, and so that means there must be some type of, um, you know, the good ones are. vocal cues or, you know, accent cues that, you know, the voice actor would use to make sure they get into the same accent. Because that, you know, when you get up to like, a, you know, 20 plus characters, like it, that's that's skill right there. For sure. And I know I have to do that. Like, I don't, I'm not a voice actor or anything, but I, I every now and then will play around and I have a decent Stewie voice, but I have to kind of, to get into that, I kind of think of Stewie saying his name, Stewie, 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 you know, to adjust the pitch and all that other stuff. So I definitely can relate if you're doing like, you know, 20 different characters, you'd kind of find. And from what I've heard online, uh, Tara Strong is one of my favorite voice actors. She does a lot of overview of um, anime dubs and a lot of other TV shows. And she kind of, talked about how she has certain triggers for certain things you know bubbles she does is super squeaky super that so she'll kind of do it's very interesting and i think as you stated earlier the the higher quality ones are going to have better tiered versions and be more consistent it's definitely an art form and as an audio listener of um i love audiobooks over reading because i'm dyslexic and readings i can listen to an audiobook much faster than i can read a book yeah, And if it's uh, well produced with each character having a different voice or in some books, they just get different actors. It definitely tells a story in a much, in my mind, more indulging way. And I can kind of suspend my disbelief a lot more than versus just reading it on a page or seeing it in a movie. But I also love the imagination that an audiobook brings where you have to, the details are filled in, but they're also not. And you're 
even though you said X, Y, Z, I could see X, Y, but my Z is a little tinted a little differently than your Y or something. It's so fascinating how our minds can kind of fill in, at least for me, the, the overactive imagination can just pull in the story and just see the world. That's what I like about your, your book and your series is your world building is so massive and I can see the potential. You know, I've, I've read and listened to The Expanse, The Bobiverse. Uh, front lines in these massive worlds and I can see the potential you also mentioned you're currently starting on book three so is book two complete or are you still making final revisions and changes no book two is published so book two published last year um and so um I'm 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 about a third of the way a third to a half of the way through book three um, how do you determine the length of um, how long you want your book to be? Is it just until that story completes or that section of the story? Yeah, that's a tough question. So um, so I do an outline of what I want to cover in that book um, because it's important to me to, to tell the story that I plan to tell. Um, and so, you know, I think it's a journey to get from the start to the end. Right. And, and there's a lot of side quests and things or side stories in, in there um, that, that build up on things that happen that will happen in future novels or introduction of characters, you know, who will play a role uh, in later books. Um, and so I think for, um, for, um, for the length of the book, you know they have um they have general guidelines based off of the type of book you're writing right so like if you're writing a science fiction novel you know people in the industry will typically accept longer novels so you know you could do a hundred a hundred and twenty thousand word novel and that's like socially acceptable in the publishing world is the publisher who sets the kind of those limits and the genre because i have noticed that science fiction books tend to be longer. And when I'm listening, listening to another type of book, I'm like, Oh, why is this so short? Yeah. I would say, I would say science fiction and fantasy specifically epic fantasy are typically longer. Um, when you get into some of your other novels, um, you know, 60,000 to 80,000 words is kind of the guidance there. Um, word based and, or I guess yeah, page based. It's word based. Um, and so it's, you know, 60, 60 to 80,000 40,000 is what you would need for a book to qualify as a novel. Anything below 40,000 words is considered a novella. Um, oh, it's a novella. But your average book is about 60,000 words. What's a novella? I'm not familiar with that terminology. Uh, it's just a short book. So basically like, um, you know, much shorter than a traditional novel. Um, a good example is um, the Binti series. Um, which is a, a series of three books. Each one of is, is a novella. So I think they're like, you know, 20 to 30,000 words long. So they're very short books, uh, but they're intended to be short books. You know, um, it's not that they're cheaper. Like, you don't pay less. You don't pay less for a novella. They're just shorter books. Um, I noticed, I do remember now that I'm thinking about it, um, the How to Train Your Dragon series were definitely shorter books, like only three hours per book you recorded. Um, yeah, those are probably novellas. Yeah, uh, I think they're also young adult. I'm curious if age affects the genre or the length. Not really. Um, so it, it has to do more with the genre, you know. So if it's like a, a romance novel, some romance novels tend to be longer. Um, and I think if we, um, you know, there, there's there's general guidelines like you can look it up online and see, um, you know, the specific, um, you know, guidelines for each each length of novel uh um and i know for myself like elevator quest for example which is a a modern fantasy novel or young adult action novel is only about um 50,000 words maybe 60,000 um so it's a much shorter book um you know and that you know it would make sense for that book to be 120,000 words that would have been too long Uh, uh well you only had so many characters left (laughs) <laughs> no spoilers, but you only had so many characters. Um, yeah. th- that does kind of make sense with NaNoWriMo. Um, I think that's the November writing challenge to write 50,000 words in November. So that kind of makes sense why they picked that kind of amount because it's close enough to being more than a novella but actually could potentially be turned into a novel. 
Yeah. So the general guidelines. Let's see. So for a novel, a novel is anything over forty thousand words. Um, novella is seventeen. 17,500 to 40,000 novelette, which is apparently a thing, is 7,500 to 20,000. Short stories, 1,000 to 10,000. Um, and then adult fictions, typically 50,000 words or longer. Young adult is 45,000 words or longer, but ideally not over 80,000 words. Middle grade, which is typically like young kids, is 22,000 words, but usually not more than 60,000. You know, and then, um, what's your source for this? I'm just looking on Kindle, Kindlepreneur. Um, we are, but a lot of it, a lot of it, honestly, has to do with production costs. Uh, and so it is more expensive to print a longer novel. <laughs> and so, so, speaking of production, do you have plans uh, for like any sort of adaptation for the screens? Whether yeah. it's, a, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's something I definitely want to do. Uh, it's a lot of work, um, and so I think one of the things that I've been working on. So there's this, um, you know, um, there are different services where you know you try to market your book to um, um, different, um, you know, producers out there, um, and, and so, you know, I've one of the things that I've been learning more about is writing screenplays, which is a different craft, it's similar to to writing a novel, but it, it's a completely different format. Uh, you're, you're basically writing scenes and, you know, you're writing a scene in such a way as an actor can kind of pick up and, um, you know, act, right? And so, you know, with a with a novel, you'll write a very detailed scene, you know, where you kind of explain the character's emotions and how they react and respond. But when you're writing a, a screen, a scene for a screenplay, um, you don't add that level of detail because that's really for the actor to kind of bring to life, right? So you might just say like, you know, uh, you know, this is the dialogue and the character in the scene is very angry, right? And then the actor actually takes that dialogue and like adds anger into it, you know, and that shows up in how they speak and how they're acting, you know, the things they do on the screen. And so that's actually, I've actually learned a lot about, you know, what you know what actors do you know it's actually you know they're they're actually bringing the screenplay to life uh because you, you don't you don't have you know you're like you're not telling you know like uh like for example if you're writing a a, a scene in a book and you know you're writing a character who's surprised right like you'll say like so-and-so's eyes well you know so-and-so's eyes went wide and their mouth opened and they took a step back right like and so you've just explained a character being surprised you you did some showing you know and so as a reader who's reading that you go like oh yeah that character is surprised and you never have to use the word surprise you, you know you just do those actions but in a in a screenplay you would just say you know uh in this scene so and so is surprised right um and so the actor actually does all those things like they bring to life that character being surprised. So it's actually the inverse of what you're doing your, when you're writing a scene in a novel versus writing a screen in a screenplay because you're you're partnering with the actors with that screenplay for them to actually bring that scene to life. Um, and so it's it's a very it's a very different style of writing. Um, and I'm learning more about it, but it's definitely something that I want to do. And you know, I'm looking to connect with people in the industry to you know, find, find outlets to bring it to life. Um, <laughs> I guess so you would want like a real life adaptation versus an animation adaptation. Um, I, think, I guess live action instead of real life. <laughs> live action is the term. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I would prefer, I mean, I, I'm open to either one. I think it would be, you know, if it was a series, you know, maybe something you know i'd be open to animated but you know for a movie probably live action just because it would be very interesting to see the characters on screen um and i think sci-fi lends itself really well to live action i think that's one of the things with sci-fi that i've that i think um at least for me like i i'm more interested in watching a sci-fi movie or series that's live action 
than watching a sci-fi animated thing um because it's i think it brings some you know a uh, level of realism to like sci-fi seeing it on the big screen versus you know animation because you know it, i don't know it's just it, at least for me like i i i prefer live action sci-fi versus uh, animated sci-fi have you watched a lot of animated sci-fi or i have um i've seen it you know i think the the difference is um you know when you see it in the real world it makes it a bit more real um and i think that's one of the cool things about sci-fi is it's supposed to be like this vision vision for the future um star trek predicted us having tablets huh how star trek predicted us having tablets yeah i mean one of the core aspects of sci-fi is just you know you're kind of building this vision for the future you're you're you know kind of forcing people to think forward and at least for me like i don't get the same sense of awe when i watch like a futuristic animated show or anime versus when i'm watching like a sci-fi series or show with like amazing cgi right like because it's just like that looks you know like it could be in the real world right like that and that and that i think is the 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 magic that sci-fi brings you know it's just like envisioning what it would be like in the real world um you know and i think that might be heavily influenced by like star trek and star wars and all those things but you know it's i think it's just something um that's unique to the genre um that i personally enjoy it being more live action when i see sci-fi so what would you want your uh if your book was turned into a movie or a show what inspiration would you want it to bring what do you hope would resolve even from just reading it what are you hoping to bring to people's lives oh asking those complicated deep questions um so i think it's different depending on the book um so you know each book is themed around different things like founder for example is very much this coming of age story showing you know where you know you can be true to who you are in a world that is very different from you right and you know i explore that through nevin a lot in founder where you know he has these set of things that are really important for him and he's thrust into this this world that's very different from what he's known you know and He's a really smart guy. He's really resourceful, but you know, almost every person he meets, every situation he's put into, you know, uh, is is a new experience for him and is very jarring or shocking or something that he's not prepared for. And so, you know, book one is showing this, you know, that you can, you know, you can be different in a world that's different from you, right? And and I think that's that's one of the core messages in Foundra. You know, in Pride of Ashna, it's a bit different. You know, I think Pride of Ashna, the the underlying theme there is, um, you know, the world can be a terrible place, but it doesn't have to be hopeless, right? And I think, you know, I show, you know, this hopeless scenario, right? Like in the outer, you know, the Pride of Ashna focuses on this character named Sarah Elex. Rez Ashfallen, who is a Dasven who lost um, one of her mothers and her sister twin uh, to a pirate raid because her parents, um, you know, Dasven are a non-binary gen- uh, species, so they don't have male or female, but, you know, they, they are typically thought to be female. And so, um, you know, because of certain physical characteristics. And so, you know, her... Um, her family goes to the outer rim to try to, you know, help those people in the outer rim, you know, who are, um, you know, less fortunate than them. And the planet that they're on just happens to be raided by pirates when, uh, you know, one day and, you know, uh, they kill half her family and, you know, they are rescued by the Ashna maidens who are this police force in the outer rim who are fighting the pirates, you know, trying to keep, you know, um, some sense of order because the Outer Rim has been forgotten by all the large empires, right? Like the Husian Empire doesn't care about the Outer Rim, you know, the Tuzan, you know, it's just ignored by, you know, these, the Husian Alliance and the other alliances that are out there. 
And so these people are forced to fend for themselves in this, this horrible environment where the pirates kind of have free reign and, you know, regularly raid, uh, raid and, and um, enslave, you know, people and steal and kill. And so, you know, Sarah Elax, you know, as a very small child is thrown into this world. Um, and, you know, she, they get rescued by the Ashnamadans and she grows up in Ashnamadan society. And one of the things with the Ashnamadans is, you know, in order for them to keep their policing engine going, um, they have very rigid requirements for anyone who comes into their territory, which is like, you know, you must uh, enlist your young daughters in our, you know, in our military faction, right? Because they're, the Ashnamadans are this, um, they're, they're basically like warrior nuns, like they're, they're chaste, they, um, you know, they're, they're committed to you know, Ashna is their, their, their goddess, their deity. Uh, so they're a highly religious uh, society and they are, you know, a militaristic society. And so they believe that, you know, Ashna has special protection for, you know, uh, women and women who, you know, are chaste. And so, you know, it leads to them recruiting uh, by force um, young girls from a very young age who are brought up in this militaristic society and forced to serve, you know, uh, for a few years, um, you know, uh, um, and then, you know, they're, you know, and, and that's a requirement of any parent, right? So if you're a parent and you are rescued by the Ashtamadans and you are in Ashtamadan space, they basically tell you, you know, um, if you wish to remain here, you must give up your daughter. Uh, if you do not give up your daughter, you must leave Ashtamade in space, right? Which pretty much is a death sentence, right? Because it's just like, you can go back to that planet that was just raided and is probably now run by pirates, right? Um, and so, you know, if you're given that choice, give up your daughter or go back to the place where you may die, you know, you're going to do what they ask you to do, right? And so um, Sarah Elax's mother is forced to make this decision and you know, she tries to get the Dosfen to come rescue her, but they're, you know, they're dealing with other situations across the galaxy and, you know, they weren't sanctioned to go out, you know, the Dosfen are normally very protective of other Dosfen, but they, um, you know, they, you know, they, where there are large populations of Dosfen, they'll send like a drone to Armada, right, that will keep watch over that section of space. But, you know, they were just a one-off family, right, on a, on a humanitarian mission, right, and so they weren't, under Dosfin protection. And so when you know, bad things happen, the Dosfin are just like, look, we, you know, we'll, we'll try to help you, but we, you know, you're, you're low in the queue, right? Like uh, we have a lot of other Dosfin who are in danger that we're, you know, we're rushing to help. And so her mother's forced to, to give up her daughter to the, to the Ashnamadans and Sarah Elex grows up in Ashnamadan society and becomes this warrior, right? You know, which, you know, if you look at Dosfin culture, Dosfin are these peace loving, diplomatic, you know, humanitarian, you know, uh, pacifists, right? And and Sarah Elex is not that, right? And so that's an interesting um, dynamic because that causes conflict between her and her mother. Because even though her mother lost her partner, you know, she she still believes in, you know, Dosfin, you know, she was raised in Dosfin society, you know, and so it, it's hard for her to fathom, you know, fighting you know and, and and going to war um and her daughter is doing exactly that and so you know i play around with sarah elax um in the second novel as one of the main characters the primary main character who um you know ends up being this pivotal figure um in the austin maidens as this new villain Suffin, who is a holdover from the first novel um you know starts to enact some plan uh, in the outer rim uh, and so, you know, the underlying story is, you know, in this society where horrible things happen, right? Like, you know, there is still hope there, you know, and I think, you know, um, but there are horrible things that happen, right, in the world that a lot of people don't know about, you know, and, and Len Rett talks about this in one of his introspective scenes in the, um, in like the Founders Log section of the second book, where it's just like, you know, for the for the average Yuzian citizen, right? Like, and there are some parallels to real life right here. You know, you can you can insert 
you know, Husian citizen as American citizen, right? Like, you know, it's like for the average Husian citizen, you know, they don't experience the hardships that other people do, you know, who aren't in a protected space, right? Like, you know, you don't see war every day. You don't see, um, you know, uh, brutality, right, on a daily basis. And there are people that do, right? And so, you know, um, actually being aware of their plights and not being blind to those, you know, is one of the is one of the one of the messages uh, in the book, and and something that I think came across pretty well. Um, and so, you know, that I do, you know, um, try to think through what the theme is or the, the takeaway is for, you know, each one of the each one of the books that I write. And there's a, you know, there's a there's a there's a theme that I think of, at, you know, when I first start writing the book. Thank you for listening. Check out our podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts if you enjoy the show. For more books and inspiring stories from today's authors, please subscribe to our podcast.